Let's pray. Father, it is by you and through you and for you only that we are in your word so we would know you more so that Christ would be exalted in our hearts and minds. So as we jump into your word and you teach us the importance of eldership in the church, as you had Paul instruct Timothy, so also instruct us so that godly men would be leading in your church so that you would be calling godly men to your ministry. We trust in you and you alone, and it is upon you that we depend for this time. Pray that your spirit would fill me, fill us, guide us, speak through me for your glory, for your sake, and so we would be satisfied in you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we addressed the importance of the elder having a desire and having aspirations for the role of elder in the church. And we talked about the importance of uh, the role itself and some of the responsibilities that an elder has. So last week, we explored some of those responsibilities, not all of them, because to be honest, we could just go on and on describing all of these uh, requirements that an elder must do while they're in the ministry. Uh, but now Paul jumps into the qualifications. He dives into the specific qualifications that are required of the man who is called to be an elder in the church or to be what Paul says is an overseer. Um, and as we talked about last week, a few other words in Scripture describe this p- particular role. And what Paul is promoting uh, in terms of eldership is an enhanced, enhanced, and this is an important word, an obvious Christ-likeness in those men who are called to step in for Jesus. Now, that's an important reality, too. They're stepping in for Jesus to lead his bride into holiness. And there's a reason that these men have a specific set of qualifications. And we'll talk about some of those reasons later, but I just want to start by saying one of the reasons that it is required of a man who is an elder in the church that he fulfills these specific requirements is because his primary responsibility is to be the husband to the church because Christ is the husband to the church, right? So scripture describes the the church as the bride of Christ and Jesus as the husband And the reason that that's described that way is because it fits perfectly the the way in which uh, God has ordained the gospel, the life of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the the Jesus ascending to heaven where he is now and returning one day for his bride matches perfectly to the structure of the first century Jewish marriage. And so... uh, While the husband is away, he sets in place for his bride specific men who meet certain qualifications to take care of his bride. I mean, think about it like this, men. If you had to leave for the weekend and you need someone to protect your home, who would you have protect your home? Somebody you don't trust or somebody you trust? It would probably be if you had to protect your bride while you're gone, wouldn't you choose a man whom you trust the most, because your most prized possession, your very own bride, is 
unprotected. And so you have to put a people that you trust the most, which means the qualifications for the man that you would have protect your wife while you're gone would be very high qualifications. And that is why Jesus, why God and why the word establishes such high qualifications for eldership, because the men who lead the church are supposed to be step-ins for the husband, Christ, to care for his bride while he's gone or until he returns when he will take over that role and we won't need elders anymore. And so part of the role of the husband in Ephesians 5 is that he sanctifies his wife with the word. And so that is a priority for the elders in the church that they're, I mean, typically in in American evangelical churches, what you find is, and I've seen this a million times, I've been in full-time ministry for like 18 years. Uh, I've been in several churches. I've seen how different churches' leadership operates. And most of the time, the elders operate like a board of advisors to a church. They operate like a business board in the sense that their priorities are, let's make sure the budget's right. Let's make sure these, uh, these things are being done. Do we have, uh, you know, like it's, it's not ministry oriented as much as it is business oriented. That's what I've seen in some churches. When I came here uh, and I, this was almost eight years ago when I first got here, I, first thing I said to the elders and I say it all the time and, and I would say right now, we're somewhat at a place where I'm, well, I'm certainly far more comfortable with where the elders are at in terms of this, but elders are filling role, a role in churches that deacons should be filling. Deacons should take care of the finances and they can report to the elders. Deacons should be taking care of the building. Deacons should be taking care of uh, the, the service work of the church. And the elders, according to Acts chapter 6, should be, or is it Acts chapter 7, um, should be spending their time in the word and in prayer. That should be the highest priority for the elders, in the word and in prayer, because what does the husband need to do for the bride? The husband needs to sanctify, according to Ephesians 5, sanctify his bride. I'll read Ephesians 5 for you. And it's talking about a husband and a wife, and it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Meaning, husbands, sacrificially love your wives. Also meaning, elders, sacrificially love the body of Christ. Love Jesus' bride. Why? Verse 26. That, so this is the reason, that he might sanctify her. How does he sanctify her? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So the husband sanctifies his wife. By washing her in the word, meaning husband, spend time with your wives in the word. That's your highest means, your greatest means to sanctify your wife. Do you care about your wife's sanctification? Do you care about your wife's spiritual growth? Do you care about your wife's life? Because this is life. This is more important than her physical life. This is her spiritual life. This is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Husbands, it is our call to sanctify our wife by being in the word, not just ourselves, but with her, to sanctify her by the washing of water with the word. Why does she need to be sanctified by the word from her husband? Verse 27, so that he might present the church. And I was talking about Christ. 
and the church so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And that is where the elders, that is the reason I take a great pride in considered a huge responsibility to lead this church according to the word so that one day when I stand before God, he's going to say, where's your bride? And I'll be like, well, which one, my wife or my church? <laughs> and I'll be able to show him my wife and I'll be able to show him the church. And, and, and the goal is to present the elders. The goal for the elders is to present the church that they shepherded in Christ's place to God and say, look how holy she is. Look how without blemish she is. She has no, rot, no, no wrinkle, no spot, no blemish. She's sanctified and purified and holy. And that is why Paul spends all of the first, whole entire first chapter in 1 Timothy clarifying sound doctrine because she can't be holy and without blemish unless she is led in sound doctrine by the elders. And so it's a huge responsibility for the elders to care for the church in a particular way, which is why the things that we talked about last week that the elders are supposed to do were so important. But now we're going to see what kind of men qualify for that role and what they need to be like. Verses 2 through 3 in 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 3, Paul writes, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, Able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Now, I don't know if we'll get through all these today. And if we don't, we can just pick it up next week. Because there's 11 in the list today and only three in next week's list. So if we don't get through them all, no big deal. We'll just pick them up next week. But essentially, what we have in these two verses is a list of qualifications for the man who is to be an elder. And this combined with his desire and his aspirations to become an elder would make a man qualified, given the existing elders also agree with this man's qualifications, and they also agree with his call from God to step into this ministry. And since we have a list, I will simply explain the meaning of these qualifications one at a time. This is a unique text where we're not breaking down sentences and trying to understand the, the sentences in its context in relationship to itself, uh, but rather simply we just have a list of qualifications right in order, so we'll just go one at a time. The first qualification is first for a reason. He says an overseer must be above reproach. Now reproach means to address someone with disapproval, and Paul is saying that the elder must live a lie, live his life in such a way that no one is able to reproach him. They live their standard of life above the ability for any reproach from anyone. Now, there's an important distinction here, and that is the fact that Satan is an accuser, right? So evil people manipulated by the enemy will reproach godly men. And we see that because... Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. And then Jesus talks about the righteous in Matthew 5 and calls and says, you will be persecuted and you will be reviled and it will be a blessing to you. And so, so they're, they're, in order for those things to happen, in order for you to be persecuted while living a godly life, in order for you to be reviled while living a godly life, there has to be naturally or logically an evil person 
or some sort of evil done against you to make a reproach against you. And that does happen. But that evil person's reproach does not disqualify a man from eldership unless that accusation is true and biblical. And also, this is an important thing to note, which we'll get to eventually, but in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, uh, Paul writes, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That is God's way of protecting the elders from having reproach slung at them left and right by anybody who feels like throwing out a, 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 an accusation on a whim. What it does is it protects the church leadership from accusations and it allows the church leadership only to be accused if it's evident to more than two people or more than one person, two or three people at least. And that verifies so that that protects the elders from having to constantly defend themselves from every tiny, maybe meaningless accusation that's thrown against them. And so it's important to understand that even though this says that the elder must be above reproach, it doesn't mean that people won't reproach them. Being above reproach also doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect, right? It doesn't mean you don't sin. Technically, you could accuse any elder of sin and you'd be right because all of us still operate within the sinful flesh and that finds its way out at least some of the time. So I know my sin. I know I've sinned. I know that there are sins that I still uh, struggle with or continue to fight and battle against and and, uh, you probably don't see most of them because I keep them... I keep them like close to me and I share them with people whom I trust and I can talk, to, talk about my sins with that person because we should be confessing our sins to one another and, and being healed through prayer and time together and being in the word together. So it's important that we confess our sins, but, but it's also important to realize that even elders aren't perfect. I mean, I'm just a guy just like you are. I'm no different than you. Same struggles, same temptations. I'm not special. Brian's not special. I mean, I think Brian's pretty special, but... <laughs> You know, like we're just guys, we're just guys that are just called to a different role, right? And then we, we, we're called to that role because God has orchestrated our lives in such a way where we're able to meet these certain qualifications for eldership and then called into that role. And, and let's be honest, do you want your elders to be not holy? You want your elders to be holy, right? I mean, What's the point if they're not? Don't you expect, not just want, but expect your church leadership to live their lives in a way that hopefully is better. I don't know if better is the right word. Hopefully is more holy than yours. And that's not a comparison thing like, oh, elders are holier than thou. Not at all. You should look to your elders as an example. You should be able to look up to the church leadership and say, I want to live my life the way they live their life. That's a great responsibility on the elders, but it's also something you should want out of your elders is that they live their lives in this particular way that gives you an example to follow. So it's very important that elders live their lives above reproach. And what it, it doesn't mean that an elder can't be accused of sin ever. It just means that the elder's life needs to be lived in accordance with all these qualifications so well that no one could reproach him regarding these qualifications. That he never does or says anything in life that allows him to, to, 
allows someone else to rightly condemn him or express disapproval or disappointment in his godliness according to the requirements of a church leader. And then that also brings up something else additionally, that these qualifications are a standard of life, not just a particular sin. So like what I mean by that is, um, we'll take one of these examples, for instance, um, hospitable. Okay, and and I'll talk about what hospitality is, but let's say today after church, I'm really tired, I'm exhausted, and someone says, hey, can I come over to your house and talk to you? And I go, I just really don't want to do that right now, I'm just really tired, and I don't let them come to my house. I don't show them the hospitality, and I don't sacrifice my own comfort for theirs. If I do that, you could definitely say, hey, that's sin, and you're an elder, you're supposed to be hospitable, and I could... And, and I might go, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry, that was, so, that, was, that was not okay of me, sure, come on over, or something like that. Now, just because I did that today, I don't suddenly lose all qualifications for eldership. So what Paul is getting at is that um, this is a standard of life for the elder, that this is like the, this is like his, the, the blood in his veins, it like runs through him. All of these qualifications are part of his nature because he lives out the nature of Christ. And if an elder does sin according to one of these qualifications, then how he responds to that sin is very important. And the degree of that sin is also important. I'm not going to get into that. But all I'm saying is it's not a matter of, ha, you weren't hospitable for half a second right there. You're no longer an elder. It's more about what Paul's establishing is what kind of man in general fits the role of elder. Well, here are the list of qualifications. Because I could be hospitable, extremely hospitable every day of my life. And then one moment I'm just not in the mood. And it would be sin for sure. But it wouldn't suddenly disqualify you. So, And some of these on the list are things that you're disqualified from for a long period of time. Depending on what the qualification is. And we'll see that as we go. So what's interesting about this list of elder qualifications is that if you're sitting here thinking, well, this is about the elders, it's not just about the elders. All Christians, all Christians should strive to live up to this kind of life. There isn't a single thing on this list that any of you could look at and say, well, I don't have to do that. This is a standard for the Christian in general. The reason God qualifies these for eldership is because he's saying, listen, all Christians need to aspire to this kind of holiness. But for eldership, they have to be able to meet these standards. So if, if, if I'm not the husband of one wife, I don't qualify, period. And I can't be an elder. It doesn't mean I'm suddenly not a Christian. And it, doesn't even, it also doesn't mean that I'm suddenly not a godly man. I just don't meet the qualification. Because there are plenty of godly men in the church who, who meet most of these requirements, but not all of them, and they are godly men. So it's important to see that as a believer, you should be looking at this list going, because if, especially if you're a woman and you're not qualified for eldership simply because you're a woman, then you shouldn't look at this and go, well, this is about men who can be elders, so this isn't about me. All of us should be striving for this is Christ-likeness. The ultimate point here that Paul's making is the elders should look like Jesus, and this list of qualifications is going to reveal a Christ-like man. And every person in this room should be thinking, I want to be more like Christ. I want to grow into Christ-likeness. So I'm going to take these qualifications strongly and meaningfully, and I want to live according to them. 
So regardless of whether you're qualified for eldership or not, this applies to all of us. What God is revealing through these qualifications is that the office of elder is the highest office in humanity worldwide, universally wide. There is no greater or higher calling in the world that exists or will ever exist than elder of God's church. Now, that's hard for me to say because I'm an elder in this church and it might appear, it might sound like, oh, you think your job's so important, <laughs> right? And I know you guys don't think that way about me, so that's fine. But, but it's really important to establish that that doesn't reveal the significance of the elder. What that reveals is the significance of the people God loves. That's why it's important. It's not because the elder himself is important. It's because the bride of God is important. If you put a guard in front of a very expensive jewel sitting in a museum and that guard stands, on, stand, stands guard to, to protect anyone from stealing that jewel, do, anyone, does, do people walk by and go, who cares about the jewel? Look how awesome this guard is. No one looks at the guard or cares what the guard says. They're like, yeah, that guy's just doing his job. Look at the beauty of that diamond. That's why we're here. It's the, the body of Christ that is the jewel of God. And our responsibility as elders is, so, is the most important responsibility because you are the most important people to God on earth. Billy Graham was so popular in America at one point, somebody asked him, why don't you run for president? And he responded, because I have a higher calling to preach the gospel. John MacArthur calls eldership the most important job in the world. There is no higher calling in the universe than to be Jesus's under shepherd to his bride. The second qualification on the list is husband of one wife. Now, this is one of the most debated commands on this list. Um, Some believe that it means you can't be a polygamist, right? That it just means you can only have one wife at a time. Having more than one wife at a time would be a polygamy. And this tends to be a popular view among evangelicals. But polygamy wasn't really an issue or a serious problem for the church in the first century. Um, there was plenty of um, perversion of human sexuality in, in Ephesus, for sure, where Paul is writing to Timothy. However, polygamy was not that big of an issue. And if this is addressing polygamy, then why is this a sin that is condemned for only elders? And why is it not condemned anywhere else or clarified as condemned for all believers? That wouldn't really make sense. Whereas what I'll tell you, I think the interpretation is, is clarified in many other texts for all believers. Let me explain what it means. When a man and a woman marry each other, they enter into a covenant with God. So there are three people in that covenant. God and the husband and the wife. And according to Matthew 19, 7 through 11, and 1 Corinthians 7, 39, that covenant remains intact until either the husband or the wife dies. So 
What we'll find, what you find in, in God's covenants with Scripture. So God makes covenants all throughout the, the Bible. He makes them with He makes covenant with Noah. He makes covenant with Abraham. He makes covenant with David. And, he, and then He makes a new covenant for us in Christ. And He also makes what is called the marriage covenant. In all of God's covenants, each of the covenants are established very similarly. They're all identical in some sense. They all have the same elements within them. There are stipulations. There is a, there's a, 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 a sanctimonious ceremony where the covenant is established. There is a biblical text that matches the covenant. There are witnesses to the covenant. There are uh, rules to abide by the covenant. There, are, um, there is a, uh, a sign of every covenant and... In all of these covenants, the marriage covenant is identical to all these other covenants. It has all those same elements that all of God's covenants have. And one of the elements of the marriage covenant is the element of annulment or the, the not annulment, but the end of the covenant. There's a stipulation biblically for when the covenant between a husband and wife ends. And that stipulation is revealed in 1 Corinthians 7.39, that the wife is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. He's talking about divorced women or married women, that they are bound to their husband as long as he is alive. And vice versa, she's bound to him and he is bound to her as long as they're both alive. Meaning, if you decide to get divorced, and I realize there are probably you know, divorced people People have been divorced, maybe even remarried here. Um, and and this, isn't a, this, this is not condemnation for you, okay? Because there is an abundance of grace when the marriage covenant do, isn't upheld biblically. God shows an abundance of grace for people, even in remarriage. So when two people decide to get divorced and they go to the courthouse and they get a document or, you know, they go to the lawyers or whatever and they get a document signed saying that they, they're divorced, well, they might have the government saying they're divorced and the church might even say they're divorced and they'll say they're divorced and their kids will say they're divorced and their friends will say they're divorced and God will say, you're still in covenant. Because that covenant exists until one of you dies, which is why God requires that you don't get remarried. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew uh, 19, 7 through 11, when he explains that when, and Matthew 5, when he explains that when a husband divorces his wife, he says, he causes her to commit adultery. Why is he causing her to commit adultery when he divorces her? Because what is she going to do? Very normal in the first century and still very normal today. What does she do? She remarries. And when she remarries, she's entering into a second covenant with a new man. And that second covenant is an adulteration of that first covenant. And that's why Jesus says it's adultery. Because she, he will, or she will, whoever is divorced, the one that gets divorced by the other one, is going to get remarried and enter into that second covenant. And that is an adulteration of the first covenant. And therefore, that man who has a second wife still is in covenant with his first wife. So he has, essentially, biblically speaking, two wives. Now, just for clarification, that man should not live as though he has two wives. And God is clear in scripture that if you get into a second marriage covenant, your responsibility is to that second marriage covenant, not the first. 
even in the Old Testament law, which we don't live by anymore, that husband in that second marriage covenant, if his wife dies, he can't return to that first marriage covenant. Now, if that makes, if you've been divorced or remarried or whatever, and you're like, oh, this is so condemning. I, I didn't know I, that was bad or anything. Listen, God is so gracious. He could very well just be like, I won't even let you start a second covenant. But by his grace and by his goodness, he blesses that second marriage covenant. And so if you're in a second marriage or a third marriage or a fourth or whatever, focus on your current wife, love her well, sanctify her with the word. And that is holiness. Okay. And instead of looking back at your past and saying, oh, I I guess I got divorced. I guess that's sin. I guess I'm just a a terrible person now. Like that is not at all what God wants you to think about yourself. That's not the attitude God wants you to have. He wants you to love your wife well now. And so do that or, or wives love your husband well to do that. So. That, so what Paul ultimately is saying is that the requirement for eldership is that a man not be divorced and remarried. And if he is a divorced and remarried, his first wife, if she's alive still, he's still bound to that first covenant, has two wives, and can't be an elder. And she would have to pass away in order for him to suddenly become qualified. So that's what I mean when I said earlier that sometimes these disqualifications last for a while and you can, if you start, if, if, you, if, you're ask, if you're thinking to yourself, well, gosh, that's really convoluted and complicated. Like, what if I divorced my wife when I was an unbeliever, but now I'm a believer and I don't even know if she's still alive. I've never even heard from her in years. She could be dead for all I know. And you're thinking, that does, that's not fair that they make this qualification so hard. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if my wife is even alive. My first wife is even alive. And I don't, listen, if you're thinking that's not fair because it's so complicated, you should be thinking Sin is so complicated. That's really the problem is that sin is convoluted and complicated. And what it does is it produces all of these difficult things. I mean, the Pharisees literally approach Jesus on marriage and Jesus is like, stay married. And the Pharisees are like, well, you say stay married, but Moses said we could get divorced. And Jesus goes, yeah, because you're so sinful. Like God created in the Old Testament... God allowed you in the Old Testament to have a certificate of divorce because you were so hard-hearted. And so because God knew he couldn't, or not that he couldn't, but knew because God didn't stop your sin and he knew you would continue to divorce and sin and sin and sin and sin. Instead of preventing the second marriage, he blessed his people by allowing them to get into a second marriage, and he protected their continuation of sin by blessing the second marriage and giving them or allowing them to get divorced. So it was God's stipulation around their sin. Basically, what he was saying is, I know you're going to sin. Here's, a, here's the best way to manage your life after you make a sin that is, ir, that is not fixable. And so you can see why this is such, why Paul adds this to the list because it's such a unique and difficult standard to live by, especially in today's world where 50% of people uh, get divorced and you'd think that in the church it'd be less, but it's the same number in the church. In fact, there are some studies that say that uh, in the church, divorce rate is even higher, which is mind-boggling when you read 1 Corinthians 7.10 that says, don't get divorced. It's a command. So, um, if you have been divorced, 
Don't feel condemned. Don't feel bad about yourself. Love your spouse. That's what God desires from you. Number three, the elder must be sober-minded, meaning he is not clouded by heresy and myths and controversies and quarrels and conspiracies and ideologies and genealogies and all of this. Who? when is Jesus coming back? End time philosophies and, and, uh, and whatever other genre of thought that disrupts sound biblical doctrine. I'll tell you a story. I knew this guy. I had the funniest conversation with him. Um, he was telling me that he knew when Jesus was coming back. He knew Jesus was coming back really soon. I was like, how do you know? He goes, well, I, was, I woke up one morning and I went outside and I saw, I forget what the number was, like 17 crows, black crows in my front yard. And I was like, yeah? <laughs> and he's like, and I remember, and I, and I said to God, if you put one more crow on that yard, that means you're coming back. I was like, what? <laughs> and then he said, and guess what happened? I'm like, another crow showed up. He's like, yeah. And I'm like, no way, in Wisconsin? Like, of course, <laughs> of course there's black crows on your front yard in the morning eating worms out of your lawn. Like, you know, it's just, I mean, he's actually, this is actually a really good dude. I, I like him. But um, <clears throat> that kind of stuff, that, that's not biblical doctrine. That's not sound doctrine. That's conspiracy or sort of like controversies. That's kind of myths and, and ideologies that, that a sound, a sober-minded man or a sober-minded person isn't going to get wrapped up in those things because scripture doesn't tell him the things he told me. And so I told him, I was like, well, dude, you just got to stick to the word, you know, and that's what keeps you sober-minded. Sober-minded means he isn't hypnotized by faulty teaching. I'll give you another example. It's very easy to be hypnotized by faulty teaching. I was on... I was on TikTok this week, and, and I saw this video by this pastor. He's just sitting on a couch, and he's talking, and he starts sharing. And the things he was saying were so good. And I was like, yeah, yeah, who is this guy? So I look him up. I won't tell you his name. Oh, I probably should tell you his name, actually. His name's Tim Ross. Heretic. False teacher. I watched him preach a sermon. I won't even get into it, but it was... He called Jesus a stripper and said he's the only stripper that he will worship. And that is just the beginning of the heinous audacity that came out of that man's mouth at the pulpit. And then he went from that right into a rap song that he was rapping. Not that rap's wrong because I love rap. It's my favorite genre of music. Um, But he went right into this rap song and the lyrics were... Put that money in my pocket. Put that money in my pocket. God's going to put money in my pocket. I was just like, what is this heresy? And so I'm sitting there watching this, this same guy speak truth in a short clip. Nothing he said in that clip was wrong or false teaching at all. You know how many people would probably hear that and go, that's good. I'm going to follow that guy. We need to be careful. And the elder needs to be sober minded to see that thing. To know this guy. What is this guy really like? What is this? Is this thing true or not true? And we need to know the word in order to do that. So he does not permit himself even fictitious ideas about God to toggle with his doctrine because he regards purity and doctrine as highly as he regards the Lord himself because the Lord himself testifies to perfectly pure doctrine. And being sober-minded, he is level-headed in all things. He's balanced. 
He's able to discern good from evil, even in minute differences. He's not a Christian nationalist, blending politics with the gospel, and, but, but instead he's letting the gospel, and he should be letting the gospel influence all of human activity, including politics, meaning he, the gospel leads him instead of other things leading him while he drags the gospel along. So the sober-minded elder is balanced in all things and committed to clarifying the truth in the midst of any controversy. And as you know, if you have a television or a phone or anything, our world, our world is filled with controversy. And people bring that controversy to church, and it's not that controversy can't be dealt with, but when we make controversy the highest appeal for the church, we lose sight of the gospel. And that's why you need sober-minded men to point the church back to the Christ to point the church back to Jesus, to point the church back to sound doctrine that Christ taught us, that the word of God teaches us. Number four, the elder must be self-controlled, meaning he is prudent and wise with his words and his body. Like James 3 says, he's able to bridle his tongue knowing that if he doesn't, it can set everything on fire. He's not given to overzealous activity, but his zeal which is profound, is measured by the wisdom that comes with being spirit-filled and spirit-led. Self-controlled really reveals that, that that man or that person is controlled by the spirit. And that's a command for everybody. All of these are commands for everybody, like I said earlier. And to be self-controlled means to be spirit-controlled. That you can only be self-controlled if the spirit's in control. It's a fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5. Ultimately, Self-control conveys that this man does not let situations or circumstances get the best of him, but that he is spirit-filled by, it reveals that he's spirit-filled by his ability to control his emotions, to control his tongue and his mind and his body, regardless of the circumstance. The world outside of him does not shake him because he knows upon what he stands. He knows the word of God. He understands the gospel. He knows that that gospel, how the gospel works in his life because he sees how the gospel works in the life of godly people because he's in the word and the word shows him that. So he's not shaken by the world or circumstances or difficulties or trials or persecutions or reviling. He stands strong. He endures them faithfully and patiently with the love of Christ, obeying God's word in all circumstances It's a difficult task, but it requires self-control. And if you're thinking, well, then I just got to control myself better. No, you need to submit yourself better to the Spirit. He alone can perform these things in a godly man. Number five, the elder must be respectable, meaning he's honorable or able to be honored. There's a reason to honor him because he's a respectful man. And therefore, he is honored, or appropriately honored, obviously not worshipped or flattered, but just appropriately honored by all who value the biblical doctrines of eldership. Now, this word respectable is the same word that was used in the first century as an honorary inscription for men of honor who revealed their respectability and the reputation that they held. So, meaning, it's seen by all. A respectable person is seen respectable by all. And that doesn't mean 100% of all humans. Obviously, there are people who just won't see it 
or people who will defy it. But it is definitely seen by anybody and everybody who values these biblical doctrines. Meaning this is really about having a Christ-like reputation. It doesn't mean you're liked by all. It means you're respected by all who value the truth of these qualifications. And that respect is earned because the elder also shows that respect to others. Number six, the elder must be hospitable, meaning they not only show hospitality in their home because they know that their home is God's home that God gave them and provided for them that they were meant to steward well for the sake of the church, the body, and for others. That's why you have a home. That's why you have a car. That's why you have money. That's why you have clothes. That's why you have possessions. Because they are provision from God given to you by his grace and his goodness. And the reason that non-believers have those same things is because scripture tells us that God lets his son rise on the godly and the ungodly. And he makes it rain on the just and the unjust. He blesses many unbelievers. In fact, he even blesses very wicked people, which David tells us in the Psalms over and over again. He's like, God, why do you continue to bless these people who hate you? Well, I'm sitting here with nothing. And I'm being faithful. Hebrews 12 answers that question. God disciplines those whom he loves. So everything you have is a possession meant to be stewarded for the glory of God and the sake of the body of Christ and people in need. And the man who's hospitable knows that because he knows that that's what the word teaches And they don't have to be naturally hospitable either because being hospitable can can be learned as we grow into our Christ-likeness. I am more hospitable today than I was 10 years ago. And to avoid being hospitable only in activity, because you you could let someone in your house but not really want them there. So you could be hospitable in activity only but not in your heart. And that's a problem because in 1 Peter 4, 9, it says that hospitality must be done without grumbling. So your heart desires to sacrifice for these people, meaning that your heart is hospitable, not just your actions. It is a genuine condition of the heart to make people feel comfortable, even if it requires your own discomfort. And why is that important? Because sacrifice, sacrifice is the most repeated and profound characteristic or activity of the Christian In the New Testament, sacrifice. And why would sacrifice be so profoundly repeated for the believer over and over and over again in the Bible or in the New Testament? Why would it do that? Because that is the identifying marker of Jesus Christ himself. That's what he is, a sacrifice. It's not just how he behaves, it's what he is by definition. He's the lamb that was slain for you. He is the sacrifice. His life was a sacrifice for you. And so then all throughout the New Testament, all you see is sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. We're taught to sacrifice. And the example of every single believer in the New Testament is that they sacrifice. And every believer or so-called believer in the New Testament who doesn't sacrifice is revealed by Jesus as not being a genuine believer. Like the rich young man who approaches Jesus and he says, what do I do to be saved? And Jesus says, do these things. Follow me. Obey my commands and follow me. And he doesn't. He doesn't, and then he says, well, he says, I've done all those things. What else must I do? And he says, go and sell all your possessions. And he wouldn't. 
He wouldn't sacrifice, and Jesus says, not saved. It is the most clear, profound marker of a believer that they sacrifice. And sometimes that sacrifice shows up in you giving up the comforts of your own rest, in your own peace, in your own home for the sake of someone else. That's hospitality. Now, number seven, the elder must be able to teach, meaning he is skillful in the art and science of teaching the word of God. Again, this doesn't have to be a natural gift. It can be a learned skill. I hope, <laughs> I hope I'm a better preacher today than I was 15 years ago. Let's just assume that I am. Um, and let's hope I get better at the art and the skill of teaching. It's fully dependent on the Holy Spirit to do this work, but still he's using my body and my brain and my mind, and I take this responsibility seriously, which is why I want to be in the Word all the time, so that when I teach you, I don't have to go, uh, I, don't, I don't know what to think. Instead, because I'm in the Word and I know the Word, as I teach, I'm able to gather up in a moment by the, by the, by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, gather up in an instant Information and knowledge from the word of God that I can apply to teaching in any circumstance. That's what an abled teacher is, can do. <laughs> now notice that Paul doesn't clarify the level of skill that this teacher must have. The church is meant to determine that. Some teachers are more knowledgeable or maybe better teachers than others. So there are a variety of types of teachers in the church. It would be impossible to clarify exactly what level of teaching ability is required for eldership. Rather, what is important here is that this man knows that it is his call to teach the church, that his doctrine is sound, and that he works hard to ensure that he is capable to do so. Or as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's what an elder is called to. And if he does that, he will become a better teacher through time. He doesn't have to be a great teacher. He just needs to be biblically sound and growing in his ability to communicate those truths. And that doesn't mean he has to preach either, although... Uh, the elder always needs to be ready to preach, but he may not always preach. But according to this, he needs to be able to. And this teaching can be that he's able to do can be informal Bible study settings, it can be Sunday morning sermons, or it could just be guiding and advising the body of Christ as they come to you for counsel. Either way, he's able to teach the church how to obey and follow Christ because he knows the word of God well enough to communicate sound doctrine. Number eight, the elder must not be a drunkard, meaning he isn't easily manipulated by the seduction of losing control of yourself. Now, since self-control, which we already talked about, has, has been established as a qualification, being drunk removes the ability for self-control because now you're taken over by something other than the Holy Spirit. And, and this, is, this is so obvious. This is such an obvious qualification for eldership. And, and I say that because even in the secular world, they would not accept a drunkard to lead their community or lead their schools or be teachers in their schools or, or, or be coaches in their children's sports or even to lead the nation. Even the secular world wouldn't allow this as, as a, would make this a qualification for leading people. 
So how much more should the church clarify that it cannot be led by a drunkard when we are to be the purest and most holy representation of Christ on earth? Number nine, the elder must not be violent, but gentle, meaning he is level-headed, level-headed. This one's tough. Not violent, but gentle. I just am glad it doesn't say not angry because <laughs> that's hard for every man. But he says not violent, but gentle. But where does violence come from? Anger. And so every one of us needs to be careful. Ephesians 4 says, be angry and do not sin. I mean, there are, it's not sin to be angry. It depends on why you're angry and how, what you do with that anger that, that determines whether it's sin or not. Being not violent but gentle means you're level-headed, not quick to anger, but gentle in action because that elder is also gentle in spirit and his words are gentle. And obviously there's a place for not gentleness but maybe vocalization and sternness and firmness, of course, but that his qualifying characteristic as a human is that he's gentle. Violence can be both physical and emotional. So gentle, uh, the gentle man doesn't allow violence to be near him because he is filled with the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is gentleness. So violence is far from him. And, and he is so in tune with the Word of God because he's prayerful and studied. So that regardless of what scenario takes place, his response is Spirit-guided toward peace. As God is the God of peace the elder also must reflect that aspect of God's nature. Number 10, the elder must not be quarrelsome, meaning he is a peacemaker. Like Jesus describes in Matthew 5, 9, he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. A son is like a father. And so as his son, the elder must be like his father, and do as Paul commands in Romans 12, 18, which is to live peaceably with all men. Which is impossible if you're quarrelsome. If you love to quarrel and fight and argue and, and, and defend and everything's a battle. You're contentious or um, what I call them are contrarians. The, the type of people who love to oppose everything simply because they love to oppose the issue itself is irrelevant to them. They just want to be against something because they get this dopamine hit when they complain about something or they argue about something or they fight about something. That contention and that argumentation becomes a habit that they need. It's like a drug for them. So they quarrel about everything and it's disruptive to the body of Christ. It's a disqualification for eldership and it's not Christ-like. Because godly people love peace because God is a God of peace. And being filled with the Spirit, they're filled with the peace of God, which again is a fruit of the Spirit. Number 11, the elder must not be a lover of money. Now this one's tricky and I wish that I had more time for it, but we tend to think that as long as we don't waste our money on unneeded things and fancy stuff, that we aren't a lover of money. Or... That as long as we don't desire money in a greedy way. I'm not greedy, so I'm not a lover of money. But just like the rest of these, there are greater depths to these commands. Money is one of Jesus' most talked about subjects 
and for good reason. Because he tells, and I already shared the story with you a little bit, but he tells the rich young man in, in Matthew nineteen twenty three. he says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why does he say that? Because money corrupts. Money corrupts. Why do we want money? I don't know anybody. Well, I shouldn't say I don't know anybody because this would actually be kind of fun. Do you guys remember, um, uh, what was it called? DuckTales? DuckTales. Woo! Dun, 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 dun. My, <laughs> some of you older people are like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and Scrooge McDuck, um, in the, in the beginning intro, every time he would jump off the balcony, he had this big giant room and it was filled with gold coins and he'd jump off the balcony and swim in those coins and he just, just to show how wealthy he was. Does anyone really want to do that? I mean, I kind of do, but like that would be fun, seems fun. I actually saw a guy try that. He filled this whole big thing up with coins and then jumped on them. They don't move. He like landed on concrete. It was like, Bam! Like he said, that DuckTales thing is not true. So um, other than that would be a fun activity to do, swim in a bunch of money maybe, um, just for the sake of doing it, I guess. Uh, How many people actually just want a huge storehouse of money just to have a huge storehouse of money to be like, look at my huge storehouse of money. Nobody wants money because they like money. Nobody likes money. You really don't like money. Money isn't what you're after. What are you after? Stuff. Stuff. Money buys stuff. And you know what else money buys? Security, happiness, safety, protection. You know what else does all those things for you? God. Which is why money is so corrupt. Because it, it gives you a false sense of all of those things. It gives you a desire for stuff you don't need. Why? Because you're not content. It gives you a desire for safety and security. Why? Because you're not content with God's protection. And I could go on and on and on. The real issue with being a lover of money is that you don't trust God. And look at the warning that, that James writes to the wealthy in James 5, 1 through 5. This is, this is pretty heavy. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. See that? You have laid up treasure in the last days. What's he saying? You think you're getting your safety and security for the end times. For when things are hard, you're going to be safe because you have money and stuff. Because you built a safe house with guns on it and whatever, you think that's what's going to protect you? Because when you look at the end times, Scripture tells us people are going to run to the mountaintops and to the caves and to the hills for safety and they will find none. There's no thing you can buy that will ever protect you from God or protect you from evil. You need God. And so he says, you laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. 
And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. Meaning you have all that collection and storing up and saving that that is your means of protection and security and safety. He's saying all that is the same. Doing that is the same as a cow eating lots and lots of food so they get nice and fat before they're slaughtered. It has no purpose. I'm not saying that God cannot bless you with money. That is not the message. Notice that James does not address their possessions. What does he address? Their hearts. He addresses the heart. That is where the problem lies. And Jesus even said in Matthew 6, 24... No one can serve two masters, for he, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Stop running after money. Stop running after safety and security. Stop running after things that won't last. Jesus says, right before the, in that Matthew 6 text, right before that, he said, you're storing up treasures for heaven? You're storing up your money? And what are you going to do, take it to heaven? you're going you're gonna to end up in hell with that money where moth, moths eat it and rust destroys it. Instead, store up, for your treasure, or store up as treasure for yourself Christ-likeness, godliness, righteousness, or ultimately the cure for being a lover of money, contentment. You don't need money. You also don't need money to be a lover of money. If you're thinking, well, if I have lots of money, then I'm a lover of money. Not, necess- not necessarily. Because poor people can be lovers of money just as much as rich people. It's not about how much money you have. It's about your heart. You could be broke and then make getting money your highest aim. And that would make you a lover of money. So the prescription for loving money is contentment. And Paul talks about this in Philippians 4, 11 to 13. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Doesn't matter what the situation is, content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now that last part of the verse has been ripped from its context so many times that it doesn't even seem like it makes sense there anymore. When Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he's saying, if I'm broke, I'm content in Christ, and I can be content in Christ because Christ is in me. Galatians 2.20 is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because of that, because Christ is in me, I'm content. I have the strength to be content when I have no food, no money, no clothes, nowhere to live. And when I have everything I need, food, a place to stay, uh, shelter, um, relationships, love, and, and, and a job, and opportunities, and whatever else I think I need, possessions and stuff, when I have those things, I'm still content, not in the stuff, but in Christ, because Christ is in me, and the strength of Christ operates through me so that I can be content regardless of whether I bound or if I'm in need. So whether you have money or don't have money is irrelevant to being a lover of money. Contentment is the key.
qualified elder is content with what he knows and he is content with what he has. Jesus. That's all he needs. My wife and I talked about this this weekend. She was talking, we were talking about things related to this, to our church, and she was expressing some, some uh, I would call them maybe, uh, maybe insecurities or worries that we talk about as she thinks about our church and the future. And I'm just, I told her, I said, I don't care. I just, I just don't care about any of that because what can man do to me? <laughs> Kill me? Oh, oh no, I get to go be with Jesus. That's the best thing ever. Like, I, there's so much contentment in, in, in the hope that we have in Christ, no matter what happens in your church, no matter what happens in your life, no matter what happens with your job, no matter what happens with your finances, no matter what happens with your family or with your vehicles or your home or your possessions or whatever, no matter what happens, we have this hope, this eternal hope that cannot be shaken, that is the truth of Jesus Christ and the promise that he makes to us that we are his eternally. That cannot be taken from me or taken from you. So I don't care what happens. I mean, I, I, I care, you know, relationally I care. But like what I'm saying is it doesn't matter. I'm not in control of today and I'm not in control of tomorrow. I'm going to walk into tomorrow and I'm walking into whatever God has for me. I don't control it. And whatever I face and whatever you face, we just have to go, I woke up this morning knowing that all I wake up to is Jesus and all I go to bed to is Jesus. And anything that I am given in between is just a blessing and I will praise God that he gave it to me through Christ. Contentment comes from knowing Christ. Are you burdened? Are you worried? Are you struggling? Are you sad? Are you suffering? Are you anxious? Are you depressed? You're not content with Christ. Are you rich? Are you striving for money? You're trying to make your business work. You're trying to work extra hours and make extra money. I'm not saying you shouldn't work hard to provide for your family. Of course you should. And if you've got to take on extra hours to do so, then do that. I'm saying, regardless of your situation, regardless of the scenario, Jesus is your only contentment. And until you get that right, you will never be satisfied. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you. You're so gracious and kind and patient with us. You call godly men to fill this, this role of elder in your church for a reason because you love your body, you love your bride so much. How, how much do you love it, God? So much that you proved it by sending your very own son to die for it, to die for her, to die for your bride. What a great gift of love and grace. And we thank you for it. So help us protect your body with the right men who are called to lead your church into the sanctification of holiness. Continue to work on us, Lord. Be patient with us as we struggle. Be patient with us as we sin. Be gracious to us as we do what's, what we know we don't want to do. But as we do, give us a heart of repentance. Reveal our sin to us so that we could walk in righteousness. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.